who is James? Uh, who is this guy? We've just started a new sermon series on this book, and James, if you don't know where to find it in your Bible, always remember there's absolutely no shame whatsoever in turning to the table of contents. When you don't know where a book is to be found, I mean, just turn right there. James happens to be near the end of the book, uh, the end of the Bible, near the end of the New Testament, right after the book of Hebrews. So if you find Hebrews, then James is next, followed by Peter, First and Second Peter, and First, Second, and Third John. Who is this man, James? He was the half brother of Jesus. They were both sons of Mary, though they didn't share the same father. James had been raised with Jesus. He had bathed with Jesus. He had eaten with Jesus and played with Jesus and grew up with Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus. According to John's gospel, we read that James and his other brothers and sisters thought that Jesus was nuts, and they scorned him uh, accordingly. That shouldn't surprise us, by the way. It's very difficult for us to see the members of our own family as anything other than, um, you know, it's hard to say, it's hard to see him as, as Colonel Martin in the armed forces. He's just my little brother, Brother Martin, or... Uh, she's not a CEO of a Fortune 500 co- company. She's, you know, Karen, my bossy big sister. It's very difficult for us to treat with the same amount of, uh, say, deference and respect a, a, a member of our family and to honor them as people outside of our homes honor and treat them. So, we, in other words, James, the guy, um, we, we should forgive him of his failing to believe in Jesus. But when you look through the resurrection appearances of Christ, especially when you read in, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you find that Jesus normally, after he was raised from the dead, he would normally appear to groups of people. So he appeared to, we celebrate on Easter morning, the three women outside of the open tomb. Uh, On Easter afternoon or Easter evening, the two disciples on the road to Demaeus, uh, Emmaus, <laughs> uh, the 12 or, or 11 disciples in the upper room, and then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people at another time. There's only two people that Jesus ever appeared to, specifically alone to, and that those two people are Peter, who had denied him, and his little brother James. So, oh, to be a fly on the wall <laughs> when that appearance took place. And he said to him, you know, brother, it is I. I am risen. Up until that point, as I said, James didn't believe in Jesus. He was a skeptic, but he was a skeptic who then came to faith by virtue of the resurrection. And what I try to tell people is that that's the only good reason to be a Christian. The real reason to be or to not be a Christian is whether or not the resurrection actually happened. I tell people, Look, if you discover what you believe about the resurrection, you will discover what to do with the rest of your life. If the resurrection is, is not real, is not true, then you should be a hedonist. You should eat, drink, and be merry, and every, every day should be a Friday because this is all there is. This is all there is. But if the resurrection is true and it actually occurred, then... 
It demands my soul, my life, my all, the very things we sing about and when I survey the wondrous cross. Finally, the last few words before we read the passage. Last week I said that there's several peculiar features about the book of James. One of them being that the, the cross of Christ is never mentioned in the book. The other being the resurrection of Christ is never mentioned in the book. And curiously enough, the name of Jesus is only mentioned twice in the book. You say, how does the brother of Jesus, who has a you know, post-resurrection appearance from Jesus, how does he fail to include those in the letter that he writes to these other Christians? And the answer that we gave is the answer that I'll say once again, is that he assumes you already believe the gospel. He's assuming you already know and have bought into the gospel, and therefore he's not trying to expand on the gospel or define the gospel or dictate to you all the essentials of the Christian faith. He's saying, here's what you do in response to the gospel. This entire book is, is how we live an integrated life of wisdom and devoted allegiance to Jesus Christ in response to the incredible grace that we have been shown. So please always keep that in mind. One of the dangers of reading James is you can do it in a moralistic, therapeutic manner, divorced from the gospel and divorced divorced from the voice of Christ. I don't want us to to make that mistake. James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, And slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, the word of God, which gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they they too deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Verse 27, I'm going to use, just talk about 27 next week. I'm saving 27 for next week. But religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Those are very good words to live by, aren't they? In verse 19. So much of the trouble that we get ourselves into in this life is because we are bad listeners. We are slow listeners. We're not quick to listen. We're slow to listen. We, we don't expend the effort necessary to find out what the other person means. Instead, we only listen to what they say, and we only respond to what they say. And of course, the difference, the distance between saying and meaning 
are very, it's very, very large, and they're very, very different. And then James says, Com- combine that with the fact that we are people who are easily angered. I don't know if this is a uniquely Christian thing or if it's just a uniquely I'm a pastor so I hear about it thing, <laughs> but I'm amazed how quickly Christians get their nose bit out of joint by, um, with each other, you know, you with the people in this room. We are so easily angered. Uh, and then what we do in our anger is we speak. We speak out of it. We speak out of the, the red flushed face that we have and, and how often it is that we re- regret the words we speak in the heat of the moment. Listen, if you will, to Proverbs 17, verse 28, where it says that even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Plutarch the Greek philosopher, used, he used to say that he had never been sorry for having kept silent, but many times he was sorry for having, having spoken. The very next proverb, Proverbs, from, Proverbs 17, verse 27, says, he goes on, a man of knowledge uses his words with restraint. A man of knowledge uses his words with restraint, whereas an angry person rarely controls their speech as they should. Someone might read uh, James here and reach the conclusion. They may say, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't get angry. Uh, Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, If anger were intrinsically wrong, Jesus wouldn't get angry and God wouldn't get angry because they're perfect. The Bible never says that God doesn't get angry. What does it say? It says that he is, he's slow to anger as we need to be. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is greater than the one who conquers a city. I've preached a lot of anger sermons in the past, probably because one of my most besetting sins is anger. And so uh, I am always trying to preach it myself before I preach it you. Um, and I've said a lot about anger. I'm not going to go anything in, into any great detail beyond simply pointing out that there's at least two ways that our anger it goes bad. I mean, the first is when our anger is quick. Quick anger is bad. And then the second is when our anger is retaliatory. Aristotle said he defined anger as the, hum- he says, anger is the desire to inflict retaliatory distress on another person. And that kind of thing, it doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. That's what James says. Your human sinful anger doesn't bring about the righteousness that God desires. But here's a test. If you're wondering if, if you are... Um, If your anger is justified, if it's righteous indignation, all you have to do is put it through the test. What does it bring about? Did that anger that I just exhibited, did it bring about the righteousness, the righteous kind of life God would desire? Did it lead me into the fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness, love, goodness, peace, patience, and et cetera? Is it? Is that what it led me into? So slow to anger, 
doesn't mean never be angry. Slow to speak doesn't mean never speak. But it does mean that we listen very carefully before we speak. I love the place in the wind in the willows where you have badger and all of the animals. They're sitting in uh, the, uh, the dining area. And Mr. Badger is sitting at the head of the table. And we read that as Badger sat in his armchair at the head of the table, he nodded gravely at intervals as the animals each told their story. And he did not seem surprised or shocked at anything. And he never said, I told you so, or just what I always said. And he never remarked that they ought to have done so-and-so or ought not to have done something else. David Roper gave me this checklist years ago. It's the uh, Am I Listening checklist. You've seen the bumper sticker which says, My wife tells me I never listen to her or something like that. (laughs) Am I listening? Am I listening? And here's the checklist. It hits me right in the heart. When I'm thinking about an answer while others are talking, I'm not listening. When I'm giving unsolicited advice, you know, unsolicited advice is usually, it usually seems like criticism. I'm not listening. When I suggest that they shouldn't feel the way that they do, I'm not listening. When I apply a quick fix to their problem, when I fail to acknowledge their feelings, when I fidget and glance at my watch and appear to be rushed, I'm not listening. When I fail to maintain eye contact, when I don't ask follow-up questions, when you, when you don't ask good follow-up questions, when I try and top their story with a bigger, better story of my own, or when they share a difficult experience, a difficult experience, and I counter with one of my own, I'm not listening. I'm not listening an awful lot. <laughs> you ever find that to be the case? Slow to speak, slow to get angry, quick to listen. Well, there are a few other verses in James that deals with this topic of speech. I'll leave those for another Sunday uh, coming up. But you know, I just wanted you to see, J- James is saying the opposite of anger is not self-control. The opposite of anger is not, I won't be angry, I'm just, I won't be angry. The opposite of anger is actually humility. It's teachability. Um, it's one who will listen. That's not the main point of the passage. (laughs) Uh, James has been called the wisdom, the the Proverbs of the New Testament, because he gives all of these really helpful pieces of wisdom back to back to back, and I've kind of tried to do just a little bit of that at the beginning here of the sermon. That's not the main point of the passage. Verses 22, 23, and 24 uh, are the main part of our passage, and I, I, I want you to notice the colorful metaphor that James utilizes here to describe the the common case of human self-deception. So verses 22, 23, and 24 are the most familiar of the entire letter. Let's read it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. When you look into a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. In, in this metaphor, James says that the Bible is a mirror. It's very interesting. When you look into the mirror, the Bible, 
what you discover before the Bible ever tells you to do anything, it first shows you yourself. It gives you a reflective image of yourself. And in this case, he says there's a certain kind of person who will look into the mirror of the Bible, and then they will go away and immediately forget what the picture is that they've seen there. So that if and when they see themselves again, they don't, they don't recognize themselves. They just say, well, that's, that's clearly not me. I've, I've met a lot of people who, who can't see themselves in the mirror, the man in the mirror. No, uh, somebody said at the end of the first service today, when I saw your sermon title, I, I just I kept hearing Michael Jackson singing in the background <laughs> for the whole sermon. It killed it for me. The man in the mirror. Well, sorry about that. Uh, didn't take that into consideration. But I met a lot of people like this. Uh, Geraldine, she's a dear Christian woman in her 70s. Geraldine, true or false, people of all ethnicities are equally valuable to God, equally loved by God, and ought to be treated with equal dignity as those who are created in God's image. You ask Geraldine that question, you say, of course, without a moment's hesitation. Of course she believes that. In fact, if the question came up in polite conversation, she'd be offended that you even asked her. But when you're with Geraldine, you notice She never has anything positive to say about ethnic minorities, especially about immigrants. And she seems to be kind of afraid of them. Based on the things that she lets slip out, she's more than just afraid of them. She has disdain for them. Geraldine is is your uh, good Christian woman. She knows good Christian people they shouldn't be racist. And she knows that she's a good Christian, Christian person. But she doesn't really believe that, they, that everyone's truly valuable and to be equally respected. Why? Because she can't see herself in the mirror. I don't want to pick on her because what I just described is true of us all. Get this. There is something in all of our hearts that resists seeing who we truly are. There's something inside all of our hearts that's like uh, the anorexic teenage girl who is actually a size 8, but when she looks in the mirror, she sees a size 18. There is something within every one of our hearts that is unable to retain the image of the man in the mirror. It's a spiritual condition. Lewis, in his screw tape letters, do you remember the great exchange where you've got Uncle uh, Wormwood, or I mean, no, Uncle Screwtape and protege, demon protege Wormwood, and he says um, to him, he says, you've got to bring your patient, that is the person you're trying to see, you've got to bring them to the point that they can practice self-examination for an hour without ever discovering any of those facts about themselves which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with them or worked in the same office with them. You've got to make it so that so they never can see the true image again. And it's a problem for every single one of us, isn't it? Let me describe two other ways that I see the self-deception of the kind that James describes in our passage. 
Uh, two other ways that I see it in my life and in your life. And the first one is lengthy in the summary, but I hope you'll follow it. Self-deception leads us to make moral decisions and take moral actions in the name of God that contradict the word of God. Self-deception leads us to say, God wants me to do this and that, which ends up being so ironic because it's in direct contradiction to the word of God. Uh, We've seen this many times. Uh, For instance, you know, the married man who justifies his adulterous affair with another woman because God has brought us together. And I have never been so happy before in all of my life. He says, I know this is from God. I know he has given me this love in my heart for him, for her. And he truly believes it. He believes it without a shadow of a doubt. God has given me such a love in my heart for this woman. I know this is from the Holy Spirit. If you want to justify anything, all you got to do is bring out the Holy Spirit and say, you know, this Holy Spirit told me that I, it was okay. Um, besides, the man says, it's not fair for my wife to be married to a man who can't love her. It's not fair for either of us to have to go through uh, the rest of our lives this way. So I'm thinking about her too. There's an entire field out there uh, in, I think it's called the field of moral psychology, where they do studies on this phenomenon that I just described to you. Uh, There's a book I was reading, and they gave, the author of the book provided this, I thought it was a great illustration of, um, of what's going on in the situation I just described. He says, imagine for a moment you have an elephant and you have a rider. So the rider is sitting on top of, of the elephant. And uh, the rider represents all of our rational processes. The reasons we give for the moral action or the moral decision that we are you know, embarking upon. The rationalizations and the justifications, the cognitive conscious processes, um, all the reasons that we tell ourselves and tell others why what we're about to do is perfectly fine. And the thing about the rider, when he's sitting on top of the elephant, he, he thinks he's steering the elephant. He thinks he's, he's, on, he's in charge and you know, we're just heading on a nice trip through the jungle on the way to the beach. And he thinks he's steering, steering the elephant. But in reality, the rider is servant to the elephant beneath. It's the elephant that's in control. So what do you think that elephant represents? The elephant, I mean, fundamentally represents our desires. Like what I really want. And our feelings which accompany those desires. And then our feelings and our desires end up profoundly shaping our moral intuition. See, the reason that guy is so confident that this is from God is because he really wants it and his emotions have really been warped by it. And so our intuition, our moral intuition, um, is completely you know, changed by that. In, uh, another side note, you know, whenever you hear somebody say that um, God wants me to do such and such thing, isn't it interesting that always... The thing that it is that they think God wants them to do is the thing that they want, that they want the most. So the writer, it's in, uh, um, 
like to review, the writer represents the controlled processes, the reasoning why we think something is right. The elephant who's in charge represents the automatic processes, the emotions, the intuitions, and whatever it is uh, that we desire. The writer may tell himself that I'm steering towards the beach, but in reality, it's the elephant who smells a pile of bananas and he's heading in that direction. Um, it's why it's so hard to change people's minds. Uh, when, they, when you see them going down a road that's the wrong road, um, it's because what we do with our friends is we speak to the rider and not the elephant. We interact with them on the level of reasons. You know, let me tell you the reasons that you're wrong. Let me tell you the reasons why this is, this is mistaken. Let me challenge your reason. We're doing all this rider talk up here when really you got to talk to their elephant because it's the elephant who's in charge. And it's very difficult to talk to elephants if you haven't, if you haven't noticed. So the Bible never tells us to disobey God's commandments. Love never tells us to commit adultery. And when we're doing that whole rationalization game of how, well, yeah, 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 I mean, adultery is wrong, but, but is this really adultery? Nah. And you're, and you're given all of these reasons, you're just following the elephant. There's been 2,000 years of church history where Christians have made moral judgments. We call this the moral orthodoxy of the church. And for the most part, the moral orthodoxy the tradition that's been handed down to us, for the most part, it's really quite sound. If you find yourself saying that the Bible, in this case, doesn't speak to my situation, and, and you find yourself deciding to go on a path that contradicts 2,000 years of moral orthodoxy, and you can't find a Bible verse that directly contradicts you, chances are you're riding the elephant. So number two, let me, I gotta get moving Self-deception will lead us, in number one, to, to say God told me to do something that directly contradicts his words. Number two, self-deception deception tends to blunt the force of the moral obligations from God's word until they no longer feel so forceful. Uh, we hear, but we do not do. There's a reason why we go from the hearing to the do not doing. Kierkegaard, in several places in his writings, describes the difficulty of moving from understanding to, to doing. Uh, this is the difficulty that if you've ever been a smoker, you know what this is like. Uh, you've read the FDA warning labels on the cigarette packs. You know that it's going to give you lung cancer. You've seen the people on the breathing machines. You've seen the autopsies with the blackened lungs. There is a, was a point in your, mo in your life you heard that voice that said, I, I know I should quit. I must quit. And then it just kind of fades away. <laughs> it happens in church. We have a missionary come and speak on Sunday. He talks to you about the incredible work they're doing in Haiti. And you're sitting there listening to him, and there's a voice inside of you that says, I know I should give. It's 50 bucks. I can do 50 bucks. 50 bucks is it's like... A third of my direct TV package. I, I know I should give 50 bucks a month. And then it just kind of fades. Why is that? As one author puts it, beliefs are sometimes demanding. 
Often beliefs will break in on us unexpectedly and start to ordering us around. In one minute, you're happy about your business, and the next minute, you find yourself with this uncomfortably demanding belief that's saying, do, (laughs) you must do. But rather than looking the tyrant belief back in the eye and saying, no, I don't want to, instead, we say, um... Let me, let me sleep on it. <laughs> Give me a few minutes to think about it. It seems like a pretty good idea, but give me 24 hours to, to ponder it. And lo and behold, when you put it off until the next day, surprisingly enough, the next day, the belief isn't nearly as demanding as it was 24 hours before. Kierkegaard talks about this. He he speaks about the power of moral procrastination. He says, if you don't act immediately on the belief, but you say, I'll wait and look into it a little bit more tomorrow, the funny thing is, tomorrow never comes. This is exactly what James is saying. He's saying that you are very content to be a hearer of the word, but you're not a doer. Hearing is so much easier than doing the distance from hearing and doing is, is the distance from heaven to hell. We go to church on Sunday, and we ask each other, somebody asks us, you know, how was church? And, you know, it was a, it was a good sermon. Yeah, it was, it was a decent sermon. And so what did you do about the sermon? Huh? <laughs> I'm supposed to do something? So consider this, because this is what James is really saying. There is something intrinsic to the human heart that will deceive you into thinking that hearing is enough. There is something internal to your heart that will deceive you into thinking that hearing is enough. And then there's all these pathways that will keep you from ever going from the understanding to the doing part. I mean, the Kierkegaardian moral procrastination would be one of them. Hearing is so easy. Uh, Doing happens 5% of the time, maybe? You know, the classic instance of this, it's when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. So a rich Jewish guy walks up to Jesus and says, "Uh, I want to inherit eternal life. I want to enter into the life of the age to come. I've been diligently trying to obey the law. I've been listening to all of the rabbis, and they tell me, Obey the law, listen to the word. Uh, But you, Jesus, seem to be different. You always have something profound to say. You have these keen insights. So I, I thought I would just come and ask you, is there anything more? Is there anything else that I'm not seeing? What must I, what else must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, actually, there is something more. You must do You must live with an extravagant, generous love, a love that takes care of the poor. You must sell your possessions, all your possessions, and come and follow me and join me in proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. This is what you must do. 
I so wish that Matthew at this point would have given us a window into what went through the man's mind at that moment. Because we find out what ends up happening, but we don't know what happens in that, that very instance. When he hears Jesus say that, you just wonder, was there anything inside of him that said, uh, was there a voice inside of him that said, I know that that is right? I know that that is what I should do? And what did, he, what did the, he then do to stifle that voice and keep himself from moving on? All it does is tell us that he went away sad because there was something he would have had to have done. He would have had to have given up something he loved very, very much. So the scripture doesn't tell us what was going on in that split second. What happens inside of you in that split second? Let me summarize, and we'll be done. Um, Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. Uh, Predisposition in my heart to not be able to recognize my own face in the mirror. Like, how do I deal with those things? Um, And the answer, there's nothing more valuable to your own spiritual growth than having one or two good friends who can tell you what you look like. You know, there really isn't. Um, there's, there's no, you have to have one or two good friends who you have the confidence to walk up to, to invite them into your life and to say, like, show me, show me what you see. Tell me what you see. Show me, tell me the contradictions you see between my profession of faith and, um, and my my life as you see it. I mean, angry people, for instance, they never think that they're an angry person. Like, you need to have somebody who will point that out to you. Tell me what you see. Secondly, I tried to touch on this. I don't think I did it effectively earlier. But community is what ends up actually affecting our elephants more than anything else. Like, a community There's a lot of sociology out there about the boundary sets of a community and how a community, there's sort of actions that are appropriate inside of a community that we all agree upon, even if we can't articulate it ourselves. And there's actions that are outside of that boundary set that that we all know that, that are not. And it's, it's actually just the vibe and the boundary set of a community that oftentimes will keep an elephant from running away like crazy. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but it's very true. And it's one of the most important reasons why you need to be a part of a healthy Christian community somewhere. And then thirdly, verse 21 says that we are to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and we are to humbly accept the word that has been planted into you. The word that has been planted into us, I do believe that word is the gospel. The gospel says to us, says to us something incredible. It says that you are a completely loved moral failure. (laughs) The book of James is very good at pointing out the moral failure part. You read through this book and you you walk away and I am 100% a moral failure. But the gospel also says you're an absolutely loved moral failure. I think that's the word that has been implanted in you. And that is the word you must continue to cultivate. You must water and feed and let the sun shine in on. Um, 
That word is the word that will undo your pride. I mean, if you know yourself to be a complete moral failure, you don't have much of a reputation to be trying to protect. Um, And then finally, just knowing that our hearts are predisposed towards being hearers only and not doers, we must challenge each other that Christ deserves more than that from us. We must challenge each other to do. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 13, is like treasure that was hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he did something. He went, took it, and hid it again in another field. And then in his joy, he went and sold the field and all that he had so that he could buy the other field. He, he did something. And Jesus says, whoever leaves houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields or whatever, whoever does something for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom will receive a hundred times more in this life. And he says, and you will be saved, in the words of James. He says, and Matthew nineteen twenty nine, that man, that man or woman, they will inherit eternal life. 